Before we begin, a reminder that nothing on this podcast is intended as a statement of faith, doctrine, or fellowship, and this podcast is not affiliated with any church, school, or calling body. What's up, gents? My name is Charlie Ungemach, and you are listening to an episode of the Gird Up Broadcast. Now, the dudes are going to join me in just a minute, and we got a lot of great content coming your way. But before we do that, I just want to say thank you to all those who help support the Gird Up Project here. All of our content at Gird Up is available free to anyone anywhere in the world who might benefit from our message, and we want to keep it that way. But we also have to rely then upon the contributions of our listeners to do so. You'll never see any paywalls or exclusive content here at Gird Up. That being said, it does cost us money to put a show like this together. So if you find what we're doing here valuable and you enjoy the broadcast and you're willing and able to do so, please go to www.girdupministries.com, click on the menu, and select Buy Us a Cup of Coffee. That $5 donation goes a long way towards keeping this podcast going and it helps us reach and minister to many more men just like you. Hope you enjoy the broadcast today. Let's get to it. Is that how you say it? I think so. That's how I heard it it's pronounced. It's umlaut, right? Yeah. Glühwein. Glühwein. You guys are the language guys. I wish, I wish very badly that <coughs> Klug had an umlaut over it. So it was actually Klug. But it's not. It's just a regular U. Which I don't actually know how you say or if that sounds different in German pronunciation. Do you? Say that again. So Klug doesn't have an umlaut in German. Mm-hmm. It's just K-L-U-G. And that disappoints me because I, w- I like the idea of being able to say my name is Klug. But how do you pronounce a U without an umlaut? Is it any different? Yeah, it would be the difference between Klug and Klug. Yeah, so Klug is fine, <laughs> but, but not, Klug not Klug would be much better. Got it. Well, as you may have guessed by now, I'm Charlie Ungemach, and this is Jacob Klug. <laughs> or, uh, no, actually, Klug. Yeah, not Klug. Klug. <laughs> Klug. All right. And over here, Mr. Isaiah Duff. What's up, Isaiah? It's a blessed day to be talking about Advent. Awesome. Yeah, glad to have you guys here. I'm very excited about this series. We're going to do a three-part series obviously starting with this one, um, getting ready for the Christmas celebration. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Advent season. It's the four weeks directly preceding Christmas. Um, traditionally in the Lutheran Church and some other uh, more uh, traditional... Liturgically minded. Yeah, liturgically minded um, church bodies uh, will often have Wednesday evening services, uh, whether Vespers services or just devotions or you know, whatever. It depends on the congregation often um, in order to celebrate and consider um, the coming of, the, well, the Advent of of our king Uh, and so we're going to go through the the old testament readings over the next couple of weeks um, that would um, be considered during those services and if you are uh, lutheran or wells or if your church does have um, those advent services you will likely hear those readings um, each of them from isaiah in on this particular podcast um, in in your worship in the coming month as well Um, so 
I'm <clears throat> really excited to have some devotional time getting ready for the advent of our Savior, which is very exciting. Um, today we have ourselves a special. We got to get in the Christmas Christmas spirit, so yeah, um, we got ourselves festive. a special Christmas drink today. Um, it is German Glühwein, as you you heard us talking about as the as the uh, um, this podcast started here. So Glühwein is a Glüh, sorry Glühwein. We just went over this. Is a German drink often served at Chris Kindle Mart, um, which is a Christmas market in Germany and Austria to keep shoppers warm while they shop. Both. Literally and figuratively warm, obviously. Um, and so uh, Glühwein literally means glow wine because it makes the one drinking it glow. Uh, I would say it's already begun to help us glow a little bit, which is awesome. And it's it's delicious. It's very it's, good. It is it's very, very pleasant. Yeah, I almost wish I would have bought two bottles so we could keep drinking it because this yeah. is all we got. <laughs> uh, but I warmed it up on a stove and... Uh, it is it is absolutely delightful. So, um, the drinking of hot wine dates back at least to the Roman Empire. There's um, there's recorded evidence, and actually, um, what do you call it when you dig stuff out of the ground? Archaeological evidence that the um, uh, the Germanic legions of the Roman Empire um, would drink warm wine and spice it up and things to keep themselves warm while they're on campaign, especially in the Germanic Germanic areas. So when they get up into the Alps and things like that. Um, but the Glühwein tradition here, um, we know for sure dates back at least to the 1400s because um, they have a, they found a tankard uh, that, so like a, a specific, they have like a specific little like tankard like mug thing that they use only for Glühwein. Um, and, uh, um, they found one from the 1400s belonging to a guy named Count John the Fourth of Kotzeinbogen, <laughs> um, and that guy. Just uh, fun fact is also the first guy ever to grow Riesling grapes, um, and so it's been dated back to 1420. So we know at least since 1420 they've been um, drinking Glühwein during the Christmas season. Um, so what it actually is is a red wine with citrus, cinnamon, and cloves, along with other spices. Added in as well. So this one, this one. Let me look at the bottle. Is it here. Cabernet? It, it's not. It, it doesn't seems say. like it. it just says it might be yeah. to me. I, I like Cabernet, and this is like Cabernet with nice spices in it. It's yeah. very good. So this one is the Winterland Schaft Glühwein. Uh, I got it at Total Wine and more. Um, yeah, it's mold wine. It doesn't. S- yeah, it doesn't say what kind of red wine it is. Um, but this one says this mulled wine has hints of vanilla, cinnamon, cloves, orange, and lemon peel with a touch of sweetness. So it's delicious. I suppose Winterland is just a uh, winterland, huh? Winter country, yeah. yeah. Winter country. And uh, looking at the note, it would be the Count of Katzene in Bogen, which would be something like. The it's Austrian German, so the dialect has me a little confused. But from my knowledge of German, that would be something like the either the the cat bows or the cat uh, papers. Cat bows. What is bows? so bow? As in, like, think of like the general shape of a bow, whether it's a rainbow or a bow and arrow. Bogen is the term for that in German, but it can also refer to paper because of the bend of a piece of paper, oh, okay. like in a book. Sure. So it could even be like the bend of a river or something. That too. Yeah. 
Again, interesting. It, it's it's one of those things where uh, knowing Hochdeutsch, specifically more of a Saxon dialect, uh, sometimes there's little differences where I'm not quite sure what something means. Uh, another little fun fact is that uh, the German term for light bulb is Glühbirn, or literally glowing pear. Glowing pear. <laughs> That's kind of awesome. It it is shaped like a pear. Yeah, clever. glowing pear. Yeah, it reminds me of some of the words that you'll hear from like modern Hebrew, where they've just turned. I mean, like popcorn is just popcorn, <laughs> right? And things like that, where they they literally just phonetically move it over. Um, but some some of the other ones are like that, where it's just describing what it is. And I can't think of a good one off the top of my head. Um, Japanese but... does that too. Like banana <clears throat> is just banana because all the vowels are are long or whatever. <laughs> There's a bunch. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. Have you guys ever been to a Chris Kindle Mart? Yes. I have not. I was in Atlanta one winter, and the family I was staying with decided they were going to go to like this um, kind of multicultural, ethnic Christmas fair thing. And in it, there was a large German section. And I thought, huh, <clears throat> this just feels like downtown Oconomowoc. <laughs> like downtown, small town Wisconsin. Like provided the downtown isn't dead or something, and there's the the little shops and the the you know the curios and the you can get a brat to eat or something like that. I thought this this feels very much like or like New Walm. Um, have your fish fry, have your porter, or your bach. You know, it's great. You're yeah. I was I was at the one in Chicago one year with my sisters. Apparently, it's the biggest one outside of Germany. Um, and it was very, very cool. And like, there were even people speaking German and things like that. Mm-hmm. It was very, very, very cool. Actually, that mug behind you, uh, Jacob, the one, the Germany mug, the Deutschland mug. Yeah, my sister bought that for. She had to, like, I don't remember how, but she distracted me mm-hmm. uh, with something else, and then like ran over there and bought it. And then like she, she saw me looking at it, and I didn't buy it. And so then she somehow distracted me and then ran over and bought it while I was while I was distracted. So it's kind of cool. Awesome. Um, this week we have someone to thank, uh, Boyce and Dorothy Herder. Thank you for helping make this show possible. Uh, Boyce and Dorothy bought us a couple of cups of coffee. We call it a cup of coffee donation because for the price of a cup of coffee, you can help support the ministry we are doing with young men. If you'd like to help support or fund the work we do here at Gird Up, go to www.girdup.com, buy, select, buy us a cup of coffee in the main menu, and make your donation there. You will also notice that right next to that tab is a um, 2023 holiday gift guide that we put together. So Connor Herder, these are his parents, by the way, who, who are helping us out. So thank you very much, Boyce and Dorothy, not only for contributing to the podcast, monetarily but also uh, contributing Connor to the podcast we love Connor and uh, we're glad to have him so thank you for raising up an awesome awesome man uh, but anyway uh, right next to you'll find the uh, gift guide which Connor and my mother and I uh, recorded that podcast last week which is uh, I think it turned out really well the gift guide is pretty cool as well I'm excited about that um, and you'll also find the letters from Father Christmas Advent uh, calendar yeah basically an advent calendar uh resource there oh no actually i don't have it up there you'll have to wait until next year but if you want to listen to the father christmas episodes they are all still up on the podcast so just type in letters from father christmas into the geared up podcast and you'll you'll find those as well so thank you boys and dorothy if you'd like to buy a cup of coffee we'll make sure we have that link down in the show notes below now 
Isaiah, it was your idea um, to go through what we call the O Antiphons. Uh, would you like to explain a little bit what that is? Certainly. So an antiphon is just a a. Did singing... I say it wrong? No, you're you're fine. Okay, I said antiphon. Am I? I was trying to be, you know, correct. But I. Just, yeah. I, I How would it be pronounced in Latin? See. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> yes. It... <laughs> he doesn't care if it's antiphon or antiphon, but if you say Augustine instead of Augustine, then Isaiah seems to ruffle a little bit. <laughs> but that's for the, another the, time. There, there I have only a slight preference. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Antiphon, it, it, ultimately it doesn't matter because language, <clears throat> Latin is a dead language. Uh, apologies to Professor Frederick. Um, <laughs> but anyways, the, the O antiphons are songs that go back and forth. So you think of parts in church where you have something that goes back and forth. For example, if I say, the Lord be with you. And also, also with, with you. you. It's those kinds of responses back and forth. Uh, in particular, this is a series of antiphons, so back and forth responses, which would be chanted in the days leading up to Christmas. And they're called O antiphons because the O indicates you're going to say a name. So, for example, today is O Adonai. It's your you're calling to that name. And these are particularly used for different names of our Lord Jesus Christ. And each one is indicative of something about our Savior. Uh, these have a historic usage that they were again used by the monks in Vespers service, that after the singing of the Magnificat, they would sing one of these. Uh, another neat thing that I found is, so there's, they were sung in different orders in different places. The traditional order, so this gives you the also the traditional seven for them, is Sapientiae, which is wisdom, Adonai, Lord, Radix, or Root of Jesse, Clavis David, Key of David, Oriens, literally east, but that's we tend to render as day spring from on high or or the dawn. Uh, Rakes, king, king of Israel, and Emmanuel. It had never occurred to me before that day spring is the beginning of the day. Yeah, <laughs> I it, can't believe it's it such an obtuse <laughs> term to modern it's just English morning. speakers. It's dawn. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Uh, but the the other <laughs> thing about that order is that it was a little. Uh, I guess you could say, uh, uh, I'm forgetting it. What, what's it called when you spell something out with like initials? Acronym? Uh, acronym. That it would be a reverse acronym if you take the days in reverse order. It spells out arrow cross in Latin, which means tomorrow I will come. Oh, that's cool. Interesting. That's very cool. Was that intentional or does it just happen to be? Uh, it depends on which Catholic scholar you're reading. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. But it, it, either way, that, that is the traditional order. And if you take the initials backwards, it, it is arrow cross. So may, the let the listener make of that what he will. Awesome. Cool. So the one we're going to go after today um, is O Adonai, which um, 
uh, let's let's read it first, and then we'll then we'll dive into it a little bit because there's so many different directions to go and and so many things to talk about. I'm excited about it. So um, obviously written in Latin, uh, Isaiah. Would, why don't you just for this just for the fun of it? Why don't you read the Latin and then I'll read the English? Certainly, All more right. than more than happy to. So the Latin reads, "O Adonai et Dux Domus Israel, qui Moisi in igne flame rubi aparuisti et e." In sina legem dedisti, veni ad redimendum nos in brachio extento. And then in Anglican English, O Adonai and leader of the house of Israel, who appeared to Moses in the fire of the burning bush and gave him the law on Sinai, come and redeem us with an outstretched arm. Awesome. Um, so, the the word Adonai in Hebrew is not actually the word we're referring to here. Um, who wants to who wants to tackle that? So when you read what if you're reading Hebrew out loud in a synagogue or even at a Jewish church today, I'm sure. I I can't imagine they do it any differently. When you come to the word for God, or more specifically the word for Yahweh, the special name that if you're looking in an English Bible, you'll see the Lord, but spelled in all caps. Mm-hmm. So the the story is that the Jewish scholars and the Israelites before this didn't want to misuse the name of the Lord. They didn't want to misuse God's name. And so what they did was they would basically put different vowels on it. Um, they'd repoint it is what we'd say if you, if you read Hebrew, but they put a different spelling over top of it or above it. They would indicate, read a different word here. Yeah. Maybe they put the word in the margin, but this got common enough that people just knew. Um, so then they'd put the let the vowels for a different word for God, a more generalized term for God, um, known as like Elohim. Maybe you've heard that before. And then they would say Adonai, which is the term Lord, Master. Yeah. So anywhere in the Hebrew Old Testament um, or the Hebrew Bible or whatever word you want to use for it, anywhere that that word appears, and we call it the Tetragrammaton. um, Four-letter word. Yep. Um, Anywhere that that appears... Um, instead of reading the word that's actually there, instead you read Adonai, which means is another name for God. And they were so scared of misusing the name of the Lord that for all intents and purposes, we have forgotten the name of the Lord. So that's where the term Jehovah comes from, is reading Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey, with the pointing for Adonai which it's not supposed to go together except that, again, they would say the name Adonai to avoid misusing God's name. Again, modern theory tends to favor Yahweh as a pronunciation of that name. All in all, it in some sense doesn't matter in that the New Testament was very comfortable in rendering that as Kyrios or Lord, which would follow the Adonai convention, and in a, a more familiar way, we have the name Jesus, yeah. and we have the names of the other persons of the Trinity, the Father and the Holy Spirit. 
And the other interesting thing along the way is the um, the quotations of the Old Testament, almost almost exclusively, the quotations of the Old Testament that you find in the New Testament are actually quotations of the Greek Old Testament, um, which is called the Septuagint, which was copied later on, obviously, and translated into Greek. Um, and so you have kind of like a double layer of, of uh, language barrier between the... Um, original Hebrew, and then the the usage of the word um, curious or Lord in the New Testament, um, which is why a lot of times it gets translated either as Yahweh, which is a, a good guess. Um, there's a lot of argument about whether or not that's the right way to say it, but it's a good, I mean, it's the proper vowels at least. Um, and then, also, or the Lord in capital letters, as Isaiah pointed out. Uh, I'd say it's somewhat analogous to in English, worshiping in the service uh we you know there's the debate between the older and newer version of the lord's prayer uh do you say the thys and thous or not and there's sort of a kind of funny reversal where the intent of using for example hallowed to be thy name is that in older english thy is singular but it's also intimate so it's intending to bring you closer to God by using that. But for modern speakers of English, thy sounds old-fashioned, and so it can have the opposite effect. So there's something kind of a, a, a funny switcheroo here, too, in that the, the name God gave was intended to be a familiar way to know him. You treat this name with the utmost reverence, but this is still a name that you only know if you are if you are in the family of God, and now it's been made distant by replacing it with Lord, which is why again I'd say it's such a great blessing that we have the name Jesus to call on. The other the other thing that's interesting about that name that the Lord reveals is that it's a name very unique to the Hebrew language, also, mm-hmm. and it's not one whether or not it had been. Um, whether or not the the vowel pointings, which didn't even exist at the time, but the, the, whether or not the pronunciation had survived, it would still be difficult to then bring that word into other languages, um, particularly in its full meaning. Um, and so um, the Yantafan here um, refers to to Moses. Um, what is the connection between um, the the name? Adonai or or Yahweh, um, what is the connection between that name and the Moses story? So when you read the burning bush account and you get to the famous line where God says, I am who I am, if you're reading that in Hebrew, you see all the consonants for the word the Lord or for the tetragrammaton and for Yahweh because... The, the Lord, or Yahweh, comes from, definitely seems to come from, the verb to be. So when, when he's saying, I am who I am, it's kind of like he's saying, I am being itself, or I am existencing. <laughs> um yeah. There, there is another take on that, which I, I want to be fair, because otherwise I think Professor Wardell would object to us. Uh, fair enough. W- which is that it's it's also possible to take it as a... Oh, I forget the specific term for it, but it's when you say something like, it is what it is. 
You you are using that rhetorically to put an end to the point of conversation. So let's say, I don't know, I'm trying to fix something and finally I throw my hands up and say, it is what it is. Well, the point is there's no discussing this. So Moses is talking to God and, and he's trying to say, well, how will they know that you sent me? And God says, I am who I am. Like, stop it. <laughs> Go. I'm sending you. Uh, so you, you, I, I think, I personally think those aren't mutually exclusive. Right. That it, it does say something about God to say, I, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. You could also take it. And he, he does say, I, I am the Lord, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this then connects, again, Moses to the ancient God of the patriarchs, but then also thinking ahead to Jesus, who, who comes in the flesh, that uh, recognizing Jesus is present in those Old Testament stories. Uh, do you have anything either of you would want to add about the burning bush scene, or should we move on to the... Sinai scene that's in the stanza. I was just going to say, so when Jesus says, I am who I am, right, he's he's calling back to this, almost like he's saying, I'm whom, who I always have been, meaning like the God who is the God of Abraham is the God of Moses, is the God of the prophets, and is me, and- Jesus and you know that's the intent because when he says, before Abraham was, I am, well, th- then they all pick up stones to try and kill him mm-hmm. because they they know what he's saying. Like the intent is clear. And if, if Jesus didn't really mean I am Yahweh, well, you would think he would have at least said something in his defense. But no, that's that's the thrust of it. And that's also why in, in the New Testament, it's such a refrain that Jesus is Lord. You can take that and sort of translate, retranslate that to be Jesus is Yahweh. Like that that's the whole point. And and the scandal of that is that the invisible, all powerful, almighty God, whose name is so holy you're not even supposed to say it, we're saying that is a man who died on a cross. A man who came in the flesh. And that, see, that's where I want to go here, mm-hmm. um, is when you take this from a philosophical standpoint, um, you actually go even further than saying this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, so uh, the uh, we gotta, we got to back up a couple of paces here, but um, it is actually a, a very strange and modern invention of um, whether you want to blame it on postmodernism or actually modernism itself um, or the scientific revolution. Uh, if you want to go back a couple of hundred years, but it is very much a modern idea and very odd in the span of history uh, to have any sort of atheism on the earth whatsoever. Um, even in the even in history, even a couple of hundred years ago, the quote unquote practical atheists um, still were deists um, or at least uh, mystics in some sort. So they thought that there was something beyond the physical, um, but they what they rejected was a godhead. Uh, in particular, in general, right? And so it's not until the the um, kind of the time of uh, I, I don't want I don't want to make it sound <clears throat> like Nietzsche is the first ever um, atheist because he was not. 
Um, but he is kind of the the front man for the eventual rise of atheism in Western society. Uh, so he's not the first, but he is the one to make it uh, both. Ex- <laughs> Again, this is a gross overstatement, but he is the one to make it both acceptable and normal and plausible in society. Or I, I think you you could also say. Nietzsche's overall point is no one no one holds to the dogmatic truths of Christianity anymore so we shouldn't pretend and act like we do and that's where his famous statement god is dead we have killed him is not some triumphant thing it's actually said with a with a bit of trembling because it comes with the acknowledgement when you lose god you lose the basis for morality and that's where Nietzsche has his idea of the Ubermensch, and he's clawing for something to try and replace Christianity. The, the funny thing about that idea is that, in a way, he almost ends up creating another Christ figure in the Ubermensch, because there there has to be some great, powerful person to save us from our lack of meaning. Wait a minute. <laughs> I've heard that story. If, if only, if only there was uh, something beyond... And it, what's visible, it, which it, would become visible and save us all. It breaks our hearts especially because Nietzsche was the son of a Lutheran pastor. Yeah, right. So thinking about how close he is to, to the truth and all of that, and I think he may have even been studying theology, but that it's... He, 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 I don't he, think he went to seminary, but he was in a... <clears throat> he did study theology at some point. Yeah, and then he encounters the writings of, I think it's Schopenhauer and goes down the rabbit hole of the atheists who preceded him and comes to his conclusions. And Right. So the point being, it's it's a very much a modern convention, um, which is odd and strange, if not outlandish, um, to the mass of history that um, there might not be a God. And so throughout history, throughout time, there is this idea that there is something beyond that which is physical, that which we can see. And different cultures, obviously, in different places and different times define that differently. Um, And so if you're familiar with, for example, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, um, I think that's probably the the most common or um, most generally known um, uh, exposition of all this, or the abolition of man. Um, the evolution of man goes even further, talking about the idea of the Tao, uh, which he likes. It's 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 Chinese in nature, but he he likes it because it's the closest thing to just a pure like life force beyond beyond which that which exists. Uh, but in Greek mythology or Greek not in Greek mythology in uh, um, but uh, in pre um, okay <laughs> in Greek um, philosophy, right? It's the Lugus. And then later on, in like the kind of the re, re, re the Renaissance of Greek philosophy, it is that which nothing greater can be conceived, right? And so there's this thing out there which must be greater than we know, greater than we understand, whatever it might be. And that word that describes this thing which is out there, which is greater than we can know or understand or conceive of in our minds, is called the Lugus. And when John writes his gospel. He says, the Lugus, that which is greater than be, can be conceived, that which is beyond the pale, that became flesh and made its dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth. And so he says, not only has that which is beyond come down and been made flesh, 
but that which is beyond is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That which simply is, that which is being itself, came down and has been made flesh. And by implication of calling him the Son of Man, then he also is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Old Testament. And these all these things are one and the same. And so um, that would have been very, very poignant to um, Jewish readers because they would have made that connection immediately. Oh, this is this is Yahweh. This is the one who speaks from the bush and says, I am who I am. And it's interesting when then you connect back to Adonai, meaning master or Lord. I'm just going to abstract that a little bit. So... So he, he's not only the creator, the the creator become flesh, but he's our master. He's the one who's not just the creator, but he's the owner. He's the one with authority. He's the one you join underneath. He's the one in charge of you. <laughs> and you see that reflected in the stanza where it then points to the giving of the law at Sinai, recognizing that it is the Lord who gives the law at Sinai, but interestingly, uh, Paul speaks of the law in Galatians as that which was mediated through angels. And so I, I think then the writing of this verse would interpret that perhaps to be the angel of the Lord, which depending on context, we would take to be the pre-incarnate Christ. So the sense that the the one who came to fulfill the law to the letter and the spirit of the law is the one who gave it to Moses in the first place. So so that the Lord shows up on Sinai to give his law to his people. And then the Lord shows up in Bethlehem and lives on this earth for 33 years to, to bring that law to completion on a different mountain. So here's a question for either of you. What does it mean personally to have a master and that it's got like, what does that mean for you that you have a master? I'm going to get, I'm okay. So our favorite podcast is the a brief history of power, right? Yes. Um, and, uh, the funny thing is the two of you are mm-hmm. Dr. Kunz and Jonathan Fisk. <laughs> like even in the way you talk, it's glorious. They just happen to be more famous and better looking. And there's the only difference is that they have more time under their belts and they're slightly better looking. That is it, you know? Um, and I said slightly for your sakes, right? Anyway, um, I, I, I am more I than willing I to admit set, to being much uglier than Dr. Kuntz. I, I, I did not set out to insult you and I ended up there somehow anyway. Um, but <laughs> so um, one of the things that, Oh, nope. See, I'm in the wrong spot anyway, because that's not the podcast I was thinking of. What I was thinking of was actually the Unbelievable podcast, um, which is also an excellent resource. It's not, it's not, um, it is one of those you have to listen to with a grain of salt because you will, um, Bible believing Christians will not agree with the Christians on the Unbelievable podcast with some regularity, but it is thought provoking and it does make you, it does challenge you and make you think. Um, but one of their most recent episodes is Ben Shapiro debating a uh, man who has very frequently um, insulted him or come after him online, um, which, frankly, Ben Shapiro kind of invites that. Um, but one of the things that they were talking about is whether or not uh, religion is good for the world. And, and um, the, the man, I don't remember his name, uh, but the man who's coming up against Ben Shapiro is talking about the idea of slavery and saying... Um, the Old Testament not only condones slavery, but even 
God commands slavery several times um, throughout the uh, more than several times throughout the Old Testament. And um, basically, how can is slavery wrong? And how can you um, claim a good God commands something that which is wrong? And I completely disagree. I actually agree with the atheist over Ben Shapiro on this particular point, which does kind of make sense because uh, Shapiro is a um, Orthodox Jew, um, a practicing Orthodox Jew. Uh, and so they, you got to be a little, you got to, if you don't have the Christ, you have, you have to finesse the Old Testament a little bit to make it acceptable, right? Um, what, what I would say in that, in that conversation is, um, again, the idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is a very American idea. It's not even a Christian ideal. Um, it is an American ideal built on the pursuit of freedom of religion, mainly by Christians who did not have the freedom to practice as they please in their own denominations in their own countries, which had state churches, which is why we do not have a state church per se in the United States so that you have the freedom to practice as you will. But that does not make it either a scriptural or Christian ideal. And so the answer to a question like how can God, like how can you worship a God um, who condemn, no, who fails to condemn, but even goes further and commands slavery at times. And even in the New Testament, Paul commands was it not Philemon? Is it Philemon mm-hmm. um, to go back into slavery? Or Onesimus is the slave. Yeah, Philemon Onesimus is the master. Yep, Onesimus to go back to Philemon and and does not exhort Philemon to set Onesimus free. Onesimus, whatever that guy <laughs> does not command him to set that guy free, but actually says. Um, he is your slave, he will remain your slave, but he is also your brother. And that's the key, is he is your brother. And um, so the, um, the ideals of um, human rights are not, are, are, are not uh, abandoned under the, in, or in the frame of uh, biblical slavery, right? Um, in fact, God exor- exhorts, slave masters and slave owners to treat their slaves as brothers. And you can get into the weeds on, you know, whether or not slavery then looks like slavery now or the slavery that we, and and it, it is a different thing. I don't think, I think we often put too much stock in that argument. Slavery is slavery is slavery. Um, and it is true that slavery when done appropriately in the ancient context did not look anything like the slavery of the American South. That does not mean that we should try and defend slavery. And in our current context, it would be wrong um, to hold slaves. The, the, the question here is, uh, but the question on the floor is, what does it mean to have a master, right? Yep. Um, and the, um, I think it is helpful to consider the idea that throughout the New Testament, the word that we translate often as slave in order to soften it for our American ears, or I'm sorry, we, we translate it as slip. servant in order to soften it to our American ears is slave. Mm. And so when you're reading the parable of the tenants, uh, you're reading the parable of the uh, shrewd manager, you're reading the, all these or, parables. Or the beginning of the epistles, Paul, a servant of Christ, or Paul, a slave of yes. Christ Jesus. And so it's this idea that I am inextricably linked to the one I am subservient to. 
And that gives a whole new meaning even to the idea of Paul telling, talking in the New Testament about um, being submissive to those who are older, right? You are in alignment with those who are in leadership over you who represent Christ, right? And so you submit to those who are leading the church um, as they submit to Christ who submits to God. Um, and then the same thing in a family. A woman submits to man who submits to Christ who submits to God. Um, and you are a part of this hierarchy, and you are the bottom rung of this hierarchy. Um, and recognizing that I do have freedom of choice, I do not have, I'm sorry, I do have free will, I do not have freedom of choice. And there is a difference between those two things. My choice is gone because my master um, determines those things. I can, I, um, I have a free will, and my will will do as it will. <laughs> but or you might the, even say freed will. Yeah, I have a freed will um, to do what my master chooses. Yeah, you went from slave to sin and death and and of Satan to now freedom in Christ. So that you are now changed by the gospel. You are now free to do good to neighbor and to family, and that is your new freedom, but it's underneath or within Christ's parameters. Well, Paul even uses the exact same word. He says, I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm a slave to Christ. And I guess, like, do you want freedom in every way? John Paul Sartre, or Sartre, I don't know how to say the French last name, Sart. Sart, yeah. Okay. I don't know that he deserves the dignity of his name being pronounced correctly. <laughs> well, that's what I'm getting at. So he took Nietzsche. Am, am I allowed to make this an anti-French philosopher <laughs> podcast? It could be. <laughs> so he, t- he takes Nietzsche's idea and goes further. He says, no, you don't need an Ubermensch to save the world. You need to accept radically just how free man is. He even admits this is painful. One of his more famous quotes is that mankind or man is condemned to be free, to bear the responsibility of all choice. Is it is it Sartre or is it the the other postmodern philosopher who it's one of those two that says that the the only true question of uh, philosophy is whether or not suicide is the option you should take. Mm, yeah, I don't remember. I will that look it either. up. But yeah, that that gives you an, a sense of uh, how cheery and hopeful their worldview was. Well, uh, and, and any worldview without Christ, right? Let's be honest. And the the other thing I would point out is that uh, because of their worldview of radical freedom and, and a lack of meaning, uh, they were pushing for things like lowering the age of consent in France. And they they had a track record of sexual abuse and other things, which I, I say that not to say that means we can just utterly gainsay their ideas. I think there's value in engaging them. But I think also as Christians, there's a value in seeing these are the roads that Satan leads people when they do not have Christ. Albert Camus said, Okay. Deciding whether oh, or not Ken- life... Camus. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, wait. I'm the one who said they don't deserve the dignity of being pronounced wrong or pronounced right. You you were correct. Camus. 
Camus says, <laughs> quote, this, this is in English, but deciding whether or not life is worth living is to answer the fundamental question in philosophy. And I guess, like, this matters very practically. Like, having a master is good. Order is good. And you can see that in and when Christians act within their God-given roles, and then beauty and harmony are are produced, right? And and like I think about a parishioner I had last year as a vicar, who was concerned about the world and the craziness of scary things that were happening in the school she was sending her son to, and and yada 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 yada, right? And she asked me like, "What's going on? Like, how does this happen?" And the answer is that like. The spirit does not live where there are lies alive. And so when people believe lies like Sartre's and Camus's, then you get madness. And then you get a lot of the things that have unfortunately been happening in the Western world that seem foreign and strange, stranger all the time to Christian ears, ears that are used to the blessings of a master. I'll tie this back to Adonai. In Psalm 123, David writes, I lift my eyes up to you, you who sit enthroned in heaven. As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a female slave look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord, our God, till he shows us mercy. Have mercy on us, Lord, have mercy on us, for we have endured no end of contempt. We've endured no end of ridicule from the arrogant or contempt from the proud. So the psalmist is saying, I'm so glad there's a master because this world is crazy. It's oppressing. It's painful. But I have a master and he's in control and he will have mercy on me. Amen. So the second half of this actually ties in very, very well with that, right? And one of God's great mercies is to define for us what his will is. And perhaps the most defining moment of um, God's will, perhaps, Mm. is that scene on Sinai, which is highlighted here also in the Antiphon. So um, a lot of times when we think about Moses, we think about the burning bush, right? And we... um, Maybe I'm wrong, but at least I personally tend to sometimes actually forget about Sinai um, and uh, think about leading in the desert and, you know, surviving in a basket and going off and killing a man and then leading him out of Israel or out of Egypt. And I forget about this whole scene on Sinai. What is the value or importance of remembering Sinai um, when calling on our Redeemer to come and save us? I'm reminded of the stanza from the hymn, Glory Be to Jesus. Abel's blood for vengeance pleaded to the skies, but the blood of Jesus for our pardon cries. That Sinai is a scene of thunder and lightning and terror. God is big. God is powerful. God is just. And a just God wipes out evil. 
the recognition of Sinai is that God is perfectly within his right to look at all of humanity, and, and I say this in a theological sense, and to be able to say to us, to hell with all of you. The mountain in contrast to Sinai is Calvary, where we see Jesus Christ, who is the fulfiller of the law, the one who saw our distress and need under the tyranny of sin and decided it was worth his time to take on our flesh, to take up our pain and suffering and sorrow and guilt and to die with it on the cross. It is the reminder, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. That for the Christian, we have immense freedom in our conscience because Christ bought us with his blood. But it is no freedom to take that status and say, well, I'm going to do whatever I want now. To be perfectly honest, if that's your attitude, then make that to do whatever the hell I want, because that's where you're going. If you deny Christ and turn away, if you can look at Calvary and say, that inspires me to sin. But rather, if you see your sin taken away and your heart is moved to trust in this Son of Man, this Son of God, as your only hope for salvation, then you are forever free, because no one can condemn you. That when Satan comes to your conscience, you take him to the font. No, I was baptized here, and this is a better word. You take him to the altar. No, I received the body and blood of Jesus, which paid for that sin. Your condemnation doesn't stand up. You take him to the pulpit. No, the declaration is that I am forgiven. The declaration is Jesus paid for it. Your charges don't hold up in court. Ooh. If this was a poetry session, I'd be snapping. <laughs> <laughs> the really crazy thing is we've got a we've got like a uh um uh, so the TV is directly across from Isaiah, and right now there's a fireplace, and Isaiah is wearing very reflective glasses. And at the moment where he's talking about going to hell, I look up, and perfectly aligned with his pupils are two flames. <laughs> and it was, it was, it was, in a wonderful way, it was quite startling. <laughs> And actually, I I do I think I think you started in the perfect place um, for for your diatribe, right? It, which is the power and terror. Is it diatribe the negative thing? No, I was just laughing at you saying that because it's very true. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, um, so is is starting here at this terror of Sinai, uh, which often we think about like, oh, he's giving him the Ten Commandments, and then he comes back down the hill, right? It's, a, it's absolute, they refuse to even approach, the, they, they were commanded not to climb on it, but to approach, and they refuse to approach, and they ask for an inter, uh, they ask for one to intercede, uh, which also, the, the, the beautiful irony of asking for one to intercede between myself and the I am is palpable also, because we, I mean, that is exactly what they needed, was someone to intercede. Um, but this delivery of that which condemns 
is a great mercy. How is the delivery of that which condemns, so the not just the Ten Commandments, but the entire law of Moses, how is the delivery on Sinai of that which condemns a blessing to believers? Well, to put it another way, like we needed a master, a really good master, a master who knows our needs. And what we needed was to be freed from the yoke of the law. And now my yoke is easy. My burden is light, as Jesus says. It's like this. He, Jesus will say, no servant is greater than his master. All right, like that makes sense. We're the servant. God's the master. And then, being the good master that he is, he washes all the disciples' feet and then dies for their sin and frees us from sin. And this is God who's fully human, who's going to arrive. And now we've got Advent. Another thing to recognize here is as Lutherans, we, we, for good reason, emphasize the law gospel distinction because it's, it's the most fundamental thing to the Christian faith. E- even if you cannot articulate it like a seminarian or a professor, it is the distinction that makes a Christian a Christian because it's knowing the difference between I save myself and Jesus saves me. Sometimes in, in our zeal to uphold that distinction, we reduce it down to law bad, gospel good. And that that's an evil thing to do. I am evil. The law is good. The gospel is a precious gift which changes my status before the law. But the law itself is not evil. The law is good. The law is God's will. Step back a moment and imagine a world where the Ten Commandments are not statements of should, but simply statements of that's the way it is. So here it is, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Not as in you shouldn't, but you won't. You just won't. And take all the commandments and then imagine what that place is like, and well, now you're imagining heaven. So the the law is good in, in that we see the goodness of God's will and, and it's good for us and that we are able to expose our sin so that we might confess it, so that we might receive forgiveness from Christ. I just always want to caution against uh, that oversimplification of law and gospel that then now as the new child, the, the new man, we're able to see the law is good and, and we want to follow it and we learn from it. Where David says, I, I delight in your law, not because it's how I'm saved, but because I can see that now that I have been saved, God, everything you want is good and I want it too. That's also a part of what it means to have a master is that there are decisions I'm not authorized to make. So I think about during vicar year for me, there would be more than once you get a question that scripture does not answer. And if I was thinking on my feet and it immediately occurred to me it was that kind of question, my canned response would be something like, that's above my pay grade. <laughs> because it's the question isn't mine to answer. God didn't give me an answer in his word. And it would be dangerous to pretend to know when, when I don't. And having a master means I have the freedom to be able to say, I don't know. I don't have an answer. But God is good, and God is in charge, and he'll know what to do.
Will you not, O Lord, do what is right? So says Abraham in Genesis 18 when he's pleading for Lot and his family. At the end of the day, he just trusts the judgment of God to deal with a bunch of people that should all be cast off. There's an interesting experience that I've heard more than one pastor, you know, tell to me, which is, you know, you think about most of the young men who graduate this institution will be about 26 years old. And so you go out somewhere and and the church is running some kind of event and something goes wrong and everyone goes to the pastor and asks him, what do we do? And maybe it's even something like, I don't know, the cotton candy machine broke. (laughs) And the pastor, especially if he's someone as mechanically inclined as I am, knows nothing about it. But because he's the guy in charge, everyone assumes, well, he's going to know what to do. Having a master, having the Lord as our master means I can look to God to know what to do. And he actually does. He does know what to do. Awesome. All right, for the sake of time, we do need to keep moving forward. But any last words on the old antiphon for antiphon? No, it's Um, antiphon. Antiphon. (laughs) Um, But on on the Tetragrammaton on Adonai for today to close out our... I would just say that it is an incredible blessing to see the continuity of Scripture and that when you see Lord in all caps in your English Bible... You can think to yourself, this is Jesus. Now, maybe the context says it's a different person of the Trinity or it's in specific, but just to be able to say, this is my God. That when you when you hear that, don't let yourself take it as cold and distant. Hear it as near. This is the God who loves you. This is the God who came in flesh to save you. Yeah. I also couldn't help but think of uh well it's like there's a lot of people that will ask us as seminarians like why do you need to take all that time and learn the languages and read the bible and the original language why is that necessary why do we do that to our pastors and uh you know luther maybe you, you might need to help me with the quote but luther said something to the effect of the 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 um original languages are the sheath in which the sword of the gospel is kept precisely right? um and the the there is deep meaning in referring to our god as the lord but there is so much more there. There are so many depths to be mined, which are completely lost in translation, which is not a an argument against translation, um, but it is a recognition of the value of knowing the languages as they as they stand. It's kind of like in it's kind of like in Minecraft when you go down the cave and you're like, oh, look at all these, look at all those. There's diamonds and there's coal and there's iron. This is great, and then. Like when you learn the original lang- original languages, then you find another shaft, another mine shaft, and then another one, and then soon you've explored, you know, for like three hours, and you find so many diamonds and so much gold. Or, and, and and the mine shafts never end, and the and longer then, the longer you spend in a mine, the more mine shafts you find, and you begin to realize, as uh, in the words of C.S. Lewis. Although I suppose in a mine it'd be it'd be the opposite. So C.S. Lewis is further up and further in. I suppose in, a, in Minecraft it'd be further down and further wider in. out. <laughs> that makes wider. me think uh, Jerome's quote is that the the scriptures are waters so shallow that a babe will never drown in them, yet so deep that you can never finish exploring them. 
Jeez, so we're talking about like Narnia and Minecraft, and you just come out with Saint Jerome? Come on, well, man. Okay, okay, I'll go. I'll go back to the Minecraft analogy, which is what I was originally going to do. Which is the other thing about learning the original languages is it it tells you where the monsters are down below. That when when you're going, sometimes the original languages are more useful in terms of guarding against false understandings which would be your creepers and zombies and skeletons. The dexterity of your mind is astounding. I love it so much. <laughs> have can you, can you have say you again played? the Jerome quote, though? Uh, the the holy scriptures are water, waters so shallow a babe cannot drown in them, yet so deep that you can never finish exploring their depths. Love it. Have you played Minecraft? I have not. You're too old. Uh, no, 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 I'm I don't. Too, like, I'm, I don't do video games. Well, that's probably a good thing. But God bless you, Charlie. <laughs> I say that as a recovering video game player. Yeah, I just never. I was talking about that with my dad the other day. They were never banned. Like we even rent. They my Christmas gift one year is to rent a PS2 for a couple of weeks during Christmas break, and I played, and then we returned it, and then I went on with life. Like, it just never... I remember I wanted a Game Boy, but that was mostly because everybody else had a Game Boy. It wasn't because I actually wanted to play sure. a Game Boy. So. This is a side comment that probably is for another time, but I think that Minecraft is one of the best ways to learn about other traditions and denominations in the Christian <laughs> faith. And we should talk about that a different time. Because we got to get moving. I actually know some people that have used Minecraft pretty extensively in education for those reasons, like in social studies and things like that. So slightly different than than the church, but um, yeah, interesting. It would be one. It would be one that if I was going to do such things, I think Minecraft would be close to the top of the list. So, all right, moving on. Uh, the theme, which we haven't even gotten to yet, which is okay, <laughs> um, for. Our little advent series here is Isaiah has foretold it. Not Isaiah Duff, although he can foretell a lot of things. I'm I, sure. I am a not so mighty seer in days of now, <laughs> contrasted with the prophet who is a mighty seer in days of old. For our listeners, he touched his glasses when he said not so mighty or not so powerful seer. So <laughs> I love it. All right. So today we're reading from Isaiah chapter 64, verses 1 through 9. We'll see how my reading chops are today. Here we go. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood and fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember in your remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and our unrighteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the day and you are our potter. Sorry. Clay. <laughs> but now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. 
be not so terribly angry, Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. And as I read it, I can't help but think, at first I was thinking, man, this would be a great sermon text because there's just so many things to talk about. And the longer I read, I thought, this would be an awful sermon text because there's just so many things to talk about. As you say that, I'm torn because... uh... So I'm a a senior assistant, meaning I'm helping a congregation, and I am preaching tomorrow. Uh, But for the sake of my workload, I am recycling a sermon from Vicar Year on the reading for Advent, last Advent, which was on Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. It, It still works with the theme because it's come to the mountain of the Lord, and there's the king who brings peace there. But when I saw this reading... Uh, we're we're keeping it because Pastor Fisher uh, liked the reading and said, "Yeah, we'll just keep it. And you can read it before you preach." Um, but I, I saw this and I thought, "Ah," oh. because I would I would love to do a text study uh, on this sermon. Two things that come to mind immediately are are just uh, so that first verse uh, has a has a special place in in my heart because a couple years ago. I decided, you know, I should I should get back into memorizing scripture. And I never fully committed to it, but 64.1 was the first verse I memorized. I, was, I happened to be reading through Isaiah at the time, and it just struck me so much. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. That it's just such a, a powerful verse, thinking about what it, what it means for God to be near, which then ties in with... with our Savior coming, and what an amazing thing it is for him to be the the little baby in the manger. Uh, the the other thought is there's a, a hymn I love, uh, O Savior, rend the heavens wide, and just this image of, of which is, is based on this text, and just this image of God coming down in his power, and what a glorious thing that will be on the last day when it's it's finally... God comes as as the big hero who sets everything right. This is the moment in the movie where all hope seems lost, and it just seems like this is it's all over. And then the hero comes, and the music swells, but it's real life, and we'll all get to see it. Whether we've gone to be with Christ in death, or whether here on earth we get to see the Lord return. It's interesting you say that you, you say that, and you, you want to start with verse one um, because. I think verse 1 kind of goes in both directions. Um, you first read it and you think, yeah, yeah, if only God would come down, right? Just come down and sit upon the mount um, or come down and, and walk among us and there would be no more questions, right? The, uh, whether you want to, kind of wherever you want to take the fire analogy, right? Um, you can, <laughs> the our hearts would burn or the wicked would burn or whatever it is, right? We get all excited about that as Christians, so that God would come. But you think about that. What are the implications of God coming? And uh, <laughs> you say, I, I was uh, in my in my in my own little immature mind, right? It was thinking like, yes, like Lord, come, like come and be with us. And there's some guy in the background going, "What are you nuts?" <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, and and this, the both can be true in the heart of a Christian at the same time, mm-hmm. right? This deep desire to to be with the Lord and to be settled for eternity, right? Uh, but also this deep fear of the Lord and uh, recognition that he is the one who is beyond all. 
He is the one who sits on the throne of judgment, and I must stand before him. And that day must come. And while I know the verdict, it does not make that moment any less... Well, it does make it less intimidating, um, but only only it, so. It's still severe, maybe you'd say. Mm-hmm. There, there's still a holy fear of God that remains, recognizing that that God is big enough to do all these things to your enemies, but that also means God is big enough to do it to you. So repent, <laughs> so that you might not be his enemy. One of the edges to the gospel that I certainly don't talk about as much as I might is the the vindication edge that the Lord will right all the injustices that have happened to me and my community, my family, my church. And I think when and where persecution may be ramping up and certainly where it's already hot, this is an excellent kind of comfort to emphasize that God will square things away even if I can't here in this life. It uh, it makes me think, perhaps this is not so pious a thought, but it makes me think about uh, my mom who has gone home to heaven. Uh, she always said that the thing she looked forward to on Judgment Day is that she, she wants there to be a recording of all the people on earth when Jesus comes back and, and the look on everyone's faces so that in eternity she could just have like the biggest TV ever and just watch and see all the reactions by all the different people, the Christians and the non-Christians. And sometimes she'd maybe push that more in the direction of I told you so to some not-Christian people she knew, um, which gets me a chuckle now. <laughs> but... uh uh but still just the thought of of vindication, that there's the moment of Jesus is right, this is true. Like like the the, the moment of being able to like breathe. My other comment comes from verse four. From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no one has seen a God besides you who's who acts for those who are who wait for him. Um, like no eye has seen or no eye has heard, right? And so we think about in the New Testament when Paul talks about the things he has in store for us, the, the things that come from a God that no one can fathom or understand just got me thinking, like what's, what would have to happen to you for you to not believe it? Meaning like what would have to be so nice Someone did something so loving and sacrificial that you just don't believe it right away. Like if someone you kind of know who's your acquaintance, let's say, saves most of his salary for 30 years of his life and then gives it it to you because they love you. Uh, (laughs) Like I wouldn't believe that because it'd be so foreign and and out of the scope of what I think love is. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to make this concrete when at least thinking about like something that is so loving that it's too much to see. My next thought comes from verse 8. 
we are the clay, you are the potter, we are all the work of your hand. So with this is the notion that the the verb for for forming like a potter goes back to the garden where when when God forms Adam out of the dust of the ground, that's the verb yatsar, this the same verb for what a potter does with clay. And there, there's this sense of that our, our relationship with God is a new creation, uh, both in, in, in coming to faith, but also in looking ahead to what we will be in eternity, that uh, Christ is the first fruit of the new creation. He has risen in an immortal body, and we are waiting for the redemption of our own bodies. And, and now the, the desire is that I, I would be the clay in God's hand, that he would form me into the right shape, so that I, I would cease to sin and I would live in his will and I would find the, the joy and peace that, that comes with that. But in, in an ultimate sense, that doesn't happen until Christ returns. Um, I can't... I'm, I'm trying to think of a moment in my life where this has been true and by the grace of God it hasn't. Um, but... Uh, this particular verse makes me think about. See, I, <laughs> I have, <clears throat> I have a strong will, and I am fiercely independent. No, I despise being told what to do or how to live, and so forth, which often makes me unteachable, just utterly and completely unteachable. Um, and by the grace of God, He has worked in my heart to a degree. Um, that I have learned to be willing um, to surrender myself uh, or submit myself to men greater than I and learn from them for both my sake, for the sake of the earthly kingdom, and for the sake or for the sake of God's kingdom on earth, and for the sake of eternity. Um, he has <laughs> stripped away my arrogance, at least to that degree. Uh, that I would be able to listen to to the men around me, at least in this context. And I, I, I even hesitate to say <laughs> to go further than that because, frankly, I is something I still struggle with. Right um, now, the idea of being clay in the hands of a potter, like floppy, sloppy, wet clay. What a fool! would look at a beautiful clay pot and say, <laughs> must have been good clay. Perhaps, perhaps the quality of the clay, <laughs> perhaps the quality of the clay played some factor. The clay would still be dirt on the ground if it had not been the hand of the potter, right? Um, and so I have this this image of my ma in my mind of I, I um, of just struggling and struggling and struggling and struggling against something right so um, the image oh here we go the image in my mind is um, putting a diaper on a child that does not want to wear a diaper right mm -hmm. um, and if you have never done it it is perhaps the greatest battle you will face in your lifetime um, and thank God. That by the time uh, children get strong enough to resist 
completely. They've become potty trained, and by the time adults um, begin wearing diapers again and perhaps would not want to, they have again been weakened to the point where they can't put up much of a fight. Uh, I could never be a nurse, uh, particularly a geriatric nurse, because I just couldn't deal with the diapers, right? Um, But the reality is that what I need most is to be simply laid down and to not have the diaper put on. That's where the analogy falls apart. But simply be laid down and made something of. Because I cannot make a thing of myself. And I have strived and struggled valiantly um, <clears throat> with all the effort, like with the effort that's praised by the world to make something of myself and utterly failed. And now here I sit, um, humbled and trusting that my Savior makes something of me. And I hate it. I hate it. Like every ounce of my flesh, every ounce of my old man rebels against the process under which I am going. And I'm not talking about seminary. Seminary helps. Um, But it also shows you how much you have to struggle. My goodness. Right? Um, And this idea that I ever thought anything of myself other than that I am depraved um, is a shock to me and a shame as it should be. Um, and if I, if I will be anything, it will be that I am made something by my heavenly father, by the potter. Um, and so the, um, before we, before I had to move out of my old house and move up here to the dorms, which I love living in the dorms, but I do miss having a house every once in a while. What we were going to do, what we had plans to do is in the, um, in the studio where we recorded this podcast, just simply, and I forget the verse and I'm too lazy to look it up at the moment. Um, but the verse, establish the work of our hands for us, Lord. Establish the work of, of our hands. That's the end of Psalm 90. Thank you. So to take the end of Psalm 90 and post it up on the wall. Uh, and this is um, also recognizing that um, I had, we had, frankly, this podcast has reached great heights at one point. There were hundreds of thousands of people listening every month. You know, there were I, we were interviewing all kinds of awesome and impressive people. And we probably could again if I would put all that effort into it again. But it had become all about Charlie, right? Um, and so everything came crashing down then when I ran out of things to say and realized I wasn't—I still wasn't the man I wanted to be, which is the whole point of the podcast to begin with. Um, and so you're sitting there thinking, what do I do now and where do I go? And you guys are all familiar with my story. Um, but that idea of anything and everything that I want to do, anything I would make of myself, any, any project that I would undergo, any study I might— uh, begin or commence any great project as Solomon, you know, like I don't. Solomon took underwent all these great projects, right? Um, with the recognition, like that's his wisdom is like the wisdom. The the uh, like we think about the baby and all that stuff as being like, oh, look, Solomon's why. That's after he's been blessed with wisdom, and his great wisdom is simply to say, I know nothing. Make me something. Um, and uh, praise God that I'm in the process of being made something. A couple of quotes come to mind. Uh, one being C.S. Lewis. I forget the verbatim, but it's something like, anyone who dares to call himself good has never really tried. Uh, the thought that it's such a hard thing to be good, that if you, you actually make that your intent and goal, you will see just how true original sin is and how it fights you at every step. Uh, the, the other quote is, uh, it's sometimes attributed to Luther, but it, it actually goes back to Augustine. Uh, 
oratio, meditatio, tentatio, theologicum faciunt, or prayer, meditation on the word of God, and suffering, trial, Luther renders it as anfectung, make you a theologian, that you, you must be in the waters of scripture and formed by them, and it is the Holy Spirit in the, the school of experience that those influences come together, and that's what teaches you to truly know God. And I, I reflect on that today as uh, it's been quite a struggle to do things that I want to do and do things that I know I have to do, and they are all good things, but my flesh is fighting every step of the way, and in some ways that seems incredibly appropriate being about to preach for the first Sunday in Advent that I, I too uh, need to hear the voice of John the Baptist repent for the kingdom of heaven is near that it's this this journey we're about to go on again is a reminder that Christ is coming soon and we all need to to tear down the presumption we have and cling to him when you struggle and fail to be the man you wish you were, it's comforting to remember that blessed are you who thirst for righteousness. And this, the interesting thing about the middle of this reading is the incredulity of um, verses 5 and 6, right? You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. And it's just, you can hear this almost a sarcasm in these words, right? You meet him who, uh, no, I lost my spot. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember in your way, you in your ways, behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time, and we shall be saved. We have be, all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. We will fade. We will all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. How? Um, I mean. The, the tie-in is how, how can one like us, one like me, be saved, right? And the, the um, I don't know, maybe you disagree with me. I think there's irony in that first, first part of verse 5. You meet him joyfully who works righteousness. Who works righteousness? I mean, certainly not I. Certainly I am not a righteous man. Um, we all have sinned, right? I feel contractually obligated <laughs> to point out this This is the verse also translated that uh, all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags and the, the filthy there is really bloody or even menstrual. So it, it, the idea is you, you cannot clean using this. It is dirty. And, and in the same way you would use a rag to try and clean something, that there's no point if it's covered in dirt and caked with all kinds of filth that you, you can't use dirt to make something clean. And, and the, the acknowledgement for us that it is, it is a pointless journey to try and be righteous on your own. Yeah. No, there's the sweeping language of it, of it too. There is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us, and we and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. What is the what is the con? I didn't look it up. I should have. What is the context of of this reading? 
No, none of us looked it up. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I know in, in general, uh, there's difficulty in pinning down the context of Isaiah because a, a lot of what he has written is preaching. And in general, the later part of Isaiah, especially here, there's 66 chapters, where in 64 is getting into uh, the last things. So thinking about God coming and end of the world and judgment of the wicked. So that's certainly in view here. Uh, in, in my preparation, I, I will admit I did not look around at the larger context so much as just these verses, but that would be kind of the 10,000 foot view. Okay, and actually, I'm not sure we need a whole lot more context than that. Um, simply because, I mean, you look at the you look at the pattern or uh, the flow of the reading itself. Um, oh Lord, that you would come down, and then kind of that. <laughs> I like to call them "oh crap" moments. Um, uh, when I was introduced to that term, it was not "oh crap," uh, but right that "oh crap" moment of uh, yeah, Lord, come down and and make yourself known to your adversaries. Um, we didn't even expect you to do great things. You came down, and did great things anyway. The earth shook. And he goes, wait a second. Um, you meet the righteous with joy, and, and who is righteous? None of us are, right? And so then the last verse, be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not in our and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. And so this idea of God looking upon his people. Uh, can you speak a little bit to what is meant by asking God to look upon his people? So when when the this is often an expression in Hebrew to to look upon and it's not just the idea that like God's a big man with a beard up in the sky and it's like hey God look down over here it it's rather looking with favor it's it's looking with approval and you kind of see that I haven't checked the Hebrew so maybe I need to be fact check on this but uh, in the ironic benediction that God would look upon us. It's that same kind of an idea that it is not just give us attention, but deal with us in a gracious way. Look on us with approval. You uh, said it well. You stole my thunder, which is good. I'm sorry, Jacob. No, it's all, all good. Yeah, to to show your countenance upon us. Like look Look with favor. It's like um, Psalm 72. Asaph says, Surely God is good to Israel, those who are pure in heart. So he, he realizes that God sees them and sees them as his people, those who, who are righteous. And then in the psalm, he confesses his sin. He calls himself a brute, a beast. I was senseless and arrogant, a brute beast before you, yet... I am always with you. You hold me by your right hand. Or uh, another verse that comes to mind with that is from Psalm 84, where the petition is, O Lord, look with favor upon the face of your anointed. Which you could also translate that as, look with favor upon the face of your Messiah, or your Christ. And then the idea that, the way God looks at Jesus, he looks at me, which, again, isn't, that's a different verse, but it's still the same sort of idea here. The The only reason God can look on us with favor is because of Christ. I think, 
I think often the temptation in reading some of the Psalms, especially the the more the darker Psalms, because not all Psalms have a resolution at the end, right? Most of them do, but many don't. Um, or reading some of these prophecies um, or some of the, the laments, whether they're in Lamentations itself or other places around the scriptures, is to read them as if there is an absence of a promise, right? To separate the lament or the mourning or the yearning from the promise itself. Uh, I think it's important to always keep in mind um, when we read the words of Isaiah or when we read um, some of these other portions of Scripture that they very much have a promised Messiah in mind as they make these pleas and these cries, right? And so as um, Isaiah looks at his own sinfulness, looks at the sinfulness of his fellow Israelites and shudders, at the idea of the Lord coming down to be with them, he still asks, Lord, look upon us and be our Redeemer. Right? I know, well, he doesn't actually say uh, be our Redeemer. He just says, do not be terribly angry. Remember not iniquity. Behold, please look, we are your people. And it continues on, the chapter continues on there. Um, but there is a seed of hope that without the promise is nonsensical, right? There is a like there there is no righteousness in us, and so how can I even ask the one who is righteous that he should not look upon our iniquities, that he should not look upon my sin, um, and that is the hope of the Christian, right? Is that instead of looking at me, he would see the face of the Anointed One, the face of the Christ, uh, whose blood was shed so that I might wear his righteousness as a robe. How can I ask? Well, that's the thing. You can't. And grace is grace. It uh, makes me think of uh, Professor Paul Wendland, who retired the other year, or then also Professor Paustian, and a point both of them would emphasize that kind of goes back to Luther is the idea that the, the kind of first response of sanctification is to hold on to God's promises and then beyond that, to to hold God to them, to, to say that, Lord, I know I am a terrible sinner and I have no right come to come before you, but you said, but you are, but I know who you are and you are gracious. I know who you are and you are merciful. I know who you are and you made a promise. So, Lord, keep it. And that there there's even a sense in which that's what God wants us to do, is, is to take his promises and throw them in his face, in a sense, and say, God, you promised, and to be that little kid who, you know, Mom, you promised we could go to McDonald's on Sunday, but it's so much bigger than that. It's, it's, it's God, you promised to save us. So now when it seems like hell itself is opening and everything is lost, I am still going to trust you will save me. I think Luther would say that's like the highest form of worship to hold God to his promises. That King Messiah, he's coming. It's all going to be good. Um, if, I, if, I was gonna put, if I was gun to my head forced to identify the most valuable thing I've learned so far at the seminary, in less than a semester, but in <laughs> a long semester, um, it is this, this idea that the um, how can the prayer of a righteous man always how can we how can we say things like the prayer of a righteous man the answer to the prayer of a righteous man is always yes 
Um, and and Jesus makes very bold promises about the prayers of, of the righteous being answered as yes. Whatever you ask in my name, it will be granted. How can this be? Well, the prayer of a righteous man is properly aligned with the will of his father. And so all a prayer, all a righteous prayer is, is taking the promises that God has given, as Isaiah said, and actually as, as Jacob quoted Luther, taking those pr- promises and simply holding them out to the Lord and say, look what you promised, now make it true. And holding God to his word, that's simply all it is. And, uh, and it is in that relationship, right? And it is in that, that mode only, in that uh, position only, that we can approach the throne of God simply because he has promised that I can. Um, and it is only with such an attitude that we can look forward to the second advent, right? A uh, second coming where I will see my father face to face. One like caution there, although I agree with all of it, is don't then think that it has to follow that your prayers are only going to work if they're righteous. Pray it all. The spirit will sort it out. Romans eight, the last half. And, uh, in some sense, like don't worry or expect yourself to say everything righteously. Just say it, trusting that he'll take care of things. Sin boldly. Sin boldly. And trust in Christ more boldly, to finish the quote. Yeah, we should probably <laughs> keep, the, keep the quote whole because it's important. But yeah, sin boldly and trust in Christ more boldly. I love it. And I would say the uh, Glühwein did his job for sure. Warmed it us up a little excellent. bit. was excellent. I am so excited about this. This yeah. is fun. I like oh, this. It occurred to me, I should have mentioned this earlier. <laughs> Apologies to the to the listener. Uh, where the O antiphons would be most recognizable is the Him, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. There we have four of them. Oh, yeah. Because it's, it's sometime in, I wrote it down... It's sometime in the 1100s that they get changed, that they take four of those seven and turn it into a hymn. Um, and okay. if you look up the lyrics online, you can find more, more of them too, if like a hymnary.org or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've been tasked with a devotion on for Christmas candlelight. Uh, and so uh, the reading is Emmanuel, right? And so don't worry, I will... Make sure you guys, you two have the opportunity to talk about Emmanuel so I can steal all of your thoughts and reproduce them as my own. I'm about to do um, a Bible study pulpit, on that so. tomorrow, so awesome! I'm prepared for that when we talk. Awesome. So you got more to look forward to. Make sure you join us again next week. We're very thankful that you have joined us. If you're still here after 90 minutes, God bless you. That means that we're putting out good content. If you didn't make it this far, then I don't need to say anything because you're not listening anyway. So uh, I, I love this. I'm so thankful for you guys. So thankful for um, the opportunity to be putting out stuff like this and the fact that um, God, has, God has blessed the effort. And just so very thankful to already see the growth of what's going on here at the seminary in myself and in my brothers. It's just, I love it. So I'm very excited about it. Thank you, uh, you two, for being on the show. Thank you to the listeners for giving me the opportunity uh, to put things like this together. Um, go be the man that God created you to be. Happy Advent. We'll talk to you next week. This has been Gird Up. You know where to find us, or you wouldn't be here. (laughs) 
On behalf of all those involved in producing, recording, editing, and distributing this episode, thank you for listening to the Gird Up Podcast. If you'd like to contact us with comments, questions, or suggestions, you can reach out to us at any of the links in the description below or on our website. Please consider supporting the work of Gird Up Ministries by donating on Patreon, shopping at our online store, or making a $5 cup of coffee donation at www.girdupministries.com. Those donations help us make more great content just like this for young men just like you. Make sure you like, friend, follow, and subscribe to Gird Up and all of our guests on your social media platforms, and consider leaving a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to the Gird Up podcast so that others can find us and be blessed by our content too. As always, thanks for listening. Now go and be the man that God created you to be. We'll see you next time.